Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and there has been a lot going on in the world of fraud lately. I think a lot of us are slightly exhausted or at least overwhelmed. I know I've heard from a lot of you that are in one or both of those categories, and I'm kind of right there with you, so I get it. At least on the podcast, I've been talking a lot about different types of fraud lately, trying to keep people as updated as possible. Last week, I got to speak with Robert Villanueva from Q6, who shared some of his expertise on Eastern European cyber fraud and just how the things that Western companies really need to keep an eye out right now as sanctions have impacted the Russian Federation. And so oftentimes that can really increase cyber fraud and monetization of data. I also, on Thursday's episode, talked a little bit about the CEO of the former anti-fraud prevention, or I guess that's a redundancy, but anti-fraud technology that was supposed to be for e-commerce companies. He, it was called NS8. The former CEO has pled guilty to fraud and faces up to 20 years in prison. So that is, I mean, that headline literally writes itself, but There's also a lot going on in cyber fraud and others, and I will be talking a little more about some of that on this Thursday's episode. But today I got to have a really good conversation with my dear friend, Frank McKenna. Frank is also a fraud fighter. I think he's probably even more well-known than I am, which is very possible. Frank is the writer behind the Frank on Fraud blog, which is popular in all areas of fraud because he really does a good job of providing some good information and and trends and sometimes just some fun fraud stories that don't often get covered. I regularly check his blog uh, before recording any of my fraud news episodes, so I just really appreciate him. And this will be Frank's third time on Fraudology, and I am so grateful that he really makes time to come be on the podcast and share some of his wisdom and expertise and knowledge. And I always enjoy talking with him. Sometimes it's fun to have a podcast because then you can have an excuse to talk to your friends about fraud and not feel too guilty because I'm technically doing work. And But Frank was previously on episode 20 where he stopped by and talked a lot about his career trajectory and why he started the Frank on Fraud blog. And then he was on episode 35, where we talked a lot about creating ROIs for future fraud. I think that's something that not enough people think about or talk about as far as looking for the hidden fraud. And that's something you'll hear Frank talk about on this episode, too. And I really appreciate that that's a drum that he regularly beats because I think it's it's really an important message and one that I definitely agree with. But today I asked him to come back to Fraudology to talk more, a little bit more about his day job in quotation marks as the chief strategist and co-founder of Point Predictive. And specifically, they just released their 2022 auto fraud trends report. And like I said before, I know a lot of you are like, we don't 
do auto fraud, but there's so much that you can learn from this. One, I think we all enjoy learning about different types of fraud and, and Frank always provides really interesting anecdotes. There's a few in this conversation we had that I found really fascinating and I think you will too. But also there are some glaring trends that emerged in this report that are also impacting all areas of consumer lending. Whether that's credit card issuing, buy now, pay later providers, personal loans, just that whole space of lending right now, there's a lot of trends and fraud methods, both intentional fraud and fraud for profit as well. Good intention people who end up committing fraud and he'll, he does a really good job of separating those two, but either whichever bucket it is almost always equates to a loss to the company. So both are important to know how to look for them before the fraud and the losses happen. I always enjoy talking with Frank about fraud and today's conversation was no different. He talked about a few things, especially towards the end that got my brain thinking just about some of the future things that we're seeing or trends we're seeing. And it's always interesting to me that he and I focus on different parts of fraud. He currently focuses on the auto industry and and car lending and all that. But I focus on e-commerce and we still are seeing a lot of the same trends and just kind of overarching story arcs about where fraud is headed and just how pervasive it is and how much it really picked up because of COVID and the stimulus is available in the U.S. and, and all of that. And we talk about that in this episode. So with that, I am going to stop this intro so that you can listen to my conversation with Frank McKenna. I hope you enjoy it and I will speak with you soon. Frank McKenna, thank you so much for coming back to the Fraudology podcast. Hey, I'm so happy to be back. Carice, it's been probably four or five months, right? Since we last talked. Yeah, I probably should have looked that up. But <laughs> in the fraud world, that's a couple of years, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Too long. <laughs> right. But last time you were here, we were talking more about the Frank on Fraud blog, which I know almost everyone who listens to this podcast follows or should be following. But today we're here to talk a little bit more about your day job. Your company, Point Predictive, that you're a co-founder of, just published the 2022 Auto Fraud Trends Report, and it really caught my attention. And I thought that we should dig into it and also how it impacts other consumer lending companies too. For sure. Yeah. It's not a fraud that I think a lot of people know about that much. I certainly didn't before I started Point Predictive and yeah. now I do. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, been about four or five years that myself and my partner have been working on this, solving this problem. So we started in 2017 and we're really starting to see a lot of pickup in the consort. We call it the consortium, which is that study that you read was all based, it was a data study. So we basically took all our applications that we received over the last year and we just sent it over to the data scientists and said, tell us what type of fraud you're seeing in the data. And so we just released it. I think it was last, maybe this week. So really timely discussion. I didn't realize that this was not, I mean, I didn't realize that you only kind of learned about auto fraud just a few years ago, more or less. Mm -hmm. What made you and your partner want to go into this world? Yeah, so we had, uh, I think last time I talked to you about kind of my trajectory of starting off in credit cards, yeah, following the problem of credit cards. Then we moved over to mortgage and we said, we can use these same 
types of things we used in credit cards to stop mortgage fraud. And then in 2013, 14, we ended up selling that company off and we were both kind of semi, I guess because I retired, semi-retired, but not really. And we got calls from people from Ally. Actually, Ian Mitchell was one of the guys. I think you know him. He said, you guys need to look at auto lending fraud because there's no tools to really target auto lending fraud. And it's a really big problem. And said, well, we'll take a look. And now five years ago, and it's it's been pretty crazy. I call it the wild west of fraud. Hmm. It really is like the mortgage industry was about 15 years ago. I This is the way I characterize it. So... Yeah. So in that study, it said that auto lenders endured over $7.7 billion in exposure due to fraud and misrepresentation during 2021. And that's up 5%, which I'm like, only 5%? Wow. (laughs) So this has been a problem for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you, I'm, or like you were, I'm not as familiar with the types of auto fraud. And honestly, when I, I kind of was so shocked by that number, I read it out loud to my husband when I saw it. And he said, how do you steal a car with that? Like, we feel like we have to give all of our information when we take out an auto loan. And I'm sure lots of people ask that question. So that's kind of where I want to start. Like, what are the types of fraud that you see in the auto world? Yeah, this is not going to come as a surprise, but there's actually, I've kind of quantified it. There's 35 different lies that people tell on auto applications to steal from lenders and dealers. But they're all kind of lumped into the same types of categories. So like income, people lie about how much they make to a Mm. car dealer or lender. So they'll double their income going into a dealership and then they make 50,000, they're going to say they make 100,000 because they want to afford the Mercedes Benz. Right. The good car. So they lie about their income. 30% of the fraud we see is that people lying about how much they make. Another 30% is people lying about where they work or creating a fake employer. And I will get into that later, but I'll talk to you all about that. That's yeah. a problem that exploded last year. That's, yeah, I'm really interested. Yeah, when we yeah. dive into that. We'll dive into that, but the, people lie about where they work. People lie about the car, right? So you can lie about the, the dealer will lie about the value of the car. So if it's, let's say a car that's worth $30,000. Mm-hmm. They'll tell the lender the car is worth $40,000 and get a loan, get the lender to give a loan for $40,000 on a car that's worth $30,000 and split the proceeds with like the buyer, right? Huh. Oh, that's wow. Called, that's called power booking, where you make the car seem a lot more valuable than it's worth. And there's a whole bunch of scams around that and a bunch of lies you can tell about the value of the car. Then the fourth type of category of lies is synthetic identity. Huge mm. problem in auto. I think it's about... I think in a study, we said something about 68 basis points. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a lot, but mm-hmm. when you start to do the math, I think that comes out to close to like $1.5, $1.6 billion a year. So it's a lot wow. that's lost to synthetic identity. I would imagine that synthetic ID too is probably targeting the more expensive cars too, right? So that even though it's 68 basis points, that's like 10, I'm trying to do the math, like 12, 15%-ish of the total amount of fraud. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a big problem. But you'd be surprised when we look at the types of cars that fraudsters get tend to have fraud on them. They're either luxury cars. Mm. So you think of Mercedes, yeah. Land Rover, Range Rovers, but it's also muscle cars. So <laughs> the two hottest cars for fraudsters, synthetic fraudsters in particular is the Dodge Charger <laughs> and the Dodge Challenger. When we see a Dodge That's Challenger right. and a Dodge Charger and it's got a questionable identity, we always know it's fraud. The other type, you'd be surprised though, Toyota Camry came up in our list of highest risk cars 
for synthetic identity. And so, yeah, that puzzled me too. But what it, it kind of gets to the dynamics. One of the things about auto fraud that's really unique is you have two motivations. You got people that are lying to, for profit. So we call it mm. fraud for profit. Mm-hmm. The other type of people are lying to get the car. Right. So they're creating a synthetic identity because they want to get the car. They have all the intentions of paying it, but they don't have a good enough credit on, on their own identity to be able to get that car. Mm. So, so you see, we see a lot of that. So those are the types of, I call them friendly fraudsters getting the Toyota Camrys, right? Right. They want to get a car that they can pay and afford. So hmm. that's, that's a pretty big dynamic in, in auto. And then docu- the, the final category is really forgery of documentation. Like mm. pay stubs, fake bank statements, fake identities, document fraud, we call it. And that's, if you talk about those 35 lies, they're going to fit into one of those categories. Employment, hmm. income, forged documents, identity. It's pretty, it's that simple. What's the difference between lying about your income and your employer and having forgery of documentation? Wouldn't you have to forge a document to prove your employer or your income or no? Not in, not in auto. So go back, dial back. (laughs) If you got a relatively good credit score and you state you make $200,000, let's say you have a 750 FICO and you say you make $250,000, they may not ask you to provide any proof of that. They'll just take Mm. your word for it. Because they're going to say, I'm a good credit score. You're going to probably be telling the truth about your income. Only probably five or 6% of applications in prime credit scores probably get a documentation request. So 95% of the time you can state whatever you, whatever hmm. you want. That's and what thinking back, I mean, it's been a while since we bought a car, like about 10 years. It's, it was new off the lot then, but I hmm. don't, yeah, I don't think we did have to actually, I mean, but it was also with our bank. And so our bank knew hmm what we had going through right. it. So that was yeah. probably a little different. That's why I assumed we didn't have to provide pay subs because they already knew what was coming in. But yeah, interesting. So, yeah, so on the prime, you don't have to even supply it. So you can just state your income. <laughs> and here's a surprising stat. One in every six loans that we get, when we score them. We're scoring about 2 million a month, 2 mm-hmm. million applications every month. One in every six times we see a loan, we've seen that borrower give an income 50% less to another lender within the last two or three days. So oh, we wow. see the borrowers changing income about 15% of the time, really dramatically when they go from one dealership to another buying a car. So you can't really rely on stated income. I think the mortgage industry hmm. call it liar loans for a reason because yeah. there's a very high prevalence, probably 20 to 30% of auto loans, the income is fabricated. One in every wow. three, close to one in every three. So, but the difference is because your, your original question is why document fraud? Document fraud is when you do request corroboration of that income. And typically, mm-hmm. it's going prime. Mm-hmm. there's an influx. The rate of forged pay stubs, some lenders report like one in every four pay stubs they get is like forged. Wow. So meaning that you can go online, right? Pay yeah. stubs um, and print one off. It's $5, very cheap. Yeah. And you can say what you make, whatever you want. It's that fraud of the ser- as a service that I started talking about service. two years ago and you and I both have seen mm-hmm. it in lots of different ways, right? I, I first ta- started talking about it in refund fraud where yep. you can hire a box or, you know, somebody to box the item, change the label, do all the little bits that are important. Mm-hmm. But it's in every part of fraud where there's just little, there are these people that have set up shops that what they're doing isn't necessarily illegal, but they are providing a service that enables illegal yeah. fraud. Yeah, yeah. there's just an interesting little anecdote here. I, it was about three weeks ago. 
I want to try one of these out, right? I went on Instagram and there was somebody advertising, get a pay stub for your auto loan. And I said, well, I'm going to go through the process. <laughs> so I went through, I created an alias, Tim Jaden. I created a Facebook profile. So there's like <laughs> Tim Jaden out there. I didn't want to give Everyone's going to friend request Tim Jaden. <laughs> yeah, Tim Jaden. That's my fraud alias. And not my, yeah, I guess it'd be my fraud alias. So, and I Instagrammed this guy and he said, pay me $80. And he said, well, how much do you want to say you make? You know, what do you want your business title to be? Um, I said, I want to make $150,000 and be like a data programmer. And he says, I'll give you a company. I'll give you a pay stub and I'll give you a website. So he basically, about a day later, I got this pay stub that said Frank, Tim Jaden, data programmer, making $150,000 a year. And there was a, a website. It was trendbill.com. If you go to that website, that's his phone number. When I called it, and asked to verify employment for Frank McKenna making yeah. He said, yes, he works here. He's worked here for five years. It was when I traced it back, it was a marijuana shop in Las Vegas. <laughs> this guy would do this fraud for serve, fraud as a service. He'd be selling mm -hmm. marijuana in the front and doing fraudulent documentations in the back of the shop and taking calls. And he would make probably a couple thousand a month doing this for other people. But I went into our data and I said, have we, have we ever seen that employer before that yeah. this guy gave me a fake pay stub? And I found like 10 or 11 different people were using it. Wow. So I knew those were all fraud. Right. right. Those people had all bought this service. But we identified last year, we have our own fraud investigation team, 5,500 fake employers. Like these are completely fabricated websites. Wow. They have phone numbers that are all, that are there just to verify employment for car shoppers to say they make whatever they want. Wow. And it's just for cars or do you feel it, do you see it in other, hmm. other I areas think it's as in, well? I think it's for rentals. So mm -hmm. there's a, mm -hmm. this is all originating, by the way, from credit repair companies. Credit mm. repair companies, not all of them, but mm -hmm. maybe that one or 2%. Shady credit repair companies operating out of their home. They can make a lot of money by creating synthetic identities for people, by giving them pay stubs, by verifying whatever over the phone. And they tend to gravitate towards rentals, like house rentals. They target auto a lot. And I'd imagine probably... Other types of lenders too, like personal online lenders get tip by as well. Oh, yeah. And I definitely am going to want to talk about that in a little bit too, because that was, you know, as I was reading through that report, I was thinking of other consumer lending fintechs that I know and BNPLs and others who are, are having very similar issues. And I really think there's... Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard, an API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, 
need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Probably a lot of overlap. So curious to like all of that, you know, you talked a little bit about some of the factors, but what factors have contributed to this increasing over the last few years? Is it, does it have anything to do with pressure on auto dealers to sell more cars or the ease of online loans? Or is it really more about the availability of this fraud as a service to have fake employers and payment stubs and everything else? Or I think you did. Yeah, I think you almost, yeah, you hit on some of the big ones there. So that's good. You understand <laughs> the dynamics of fraud, actually. But here's a, here's a really <laughs> big one. Here's a big one for 2021. 20, 2020 and 2021, the COVID came out. Mm-hmm. All the stimulus went out there. You had hundreds and hundreds oh, of thousands wait. of people learning how to commit fraud and learning how easy it was just by buying basically piece of identity and then submitting loans, right? Is right. And it became very simple. And people learn how to commit fraud. The stimulus dried up and these people were looking for new avenues. And I think mm. they really gravitated towards a few areas. Check fraud being one, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can buy and sell stolen checks. It's pretty low tech. Auto fraud being another, because here's the thing, stealing cars through financing can be extremely profitable. And I'll give you an example. Mm. This happens every day. People go in with a stolen or synthetic identity. They go into a Range Rover dealership or a Mercedes dealership and they'll go top of the line, black on black car, and they'll put a little money down, use the synthetic identity and finance it. They'll take that car to the ship to get a shipping container. It's $5,000. So let's say they put five, you know, 10,000 into the car as a down payment. They take another 5,000, pay to put it in a shipping container, ship it over to Asia, sell it in Asia for $250,000. So they take their original, what is that? $20,000 investment and turn it into $250,000. So it's super lucrative. Why would you steal a credit card and make you know, $3,000? You could do this with a car, ship it over and make $230,000. So it's that sort of incentive that these people that were doing pandemic-related fraud are looking at that and going, hey, this is some big money. I can mm-hmm. specialize in this. So I, that was, a, I think, a primary driver mm-hmm. that we saw in the increase in fraud. I think you, you picked up on the other one, which is this fraud as a service. Mm-hmm. You've seen that in refunding fraud. Oh, yeah. And you've been educating the industry on that for many years. The same is happening in auto, just with the twist with these credit repair companies on synthetic identities. Those are the big drivers. And then cars are getting more and more and more expensive and there's less inventory. So people have to lie to afford the cars now because nobody makes mm. enough money. The lenders are trying to offer longer and longer terms, like 84, 90, 60, really long terms to make it more affordable. But sometimes people just lie to be able to afford those. And it's, all those things are driving up the higher rates of fraud. Hmm. Wow. I think you hit on something really interesting that I'm going to have to explore another time, like really dive into it because 
the fact that so many people did learn how easy it was to commit fraud with PVP fraud and unemployment and others during that time. And then realizing it's very high reward, low risk, essentially. And there's so many how-to tutorials out there from YouTube to Telegram to others. You and I have both found them. I think I also see a lot of the same people when I worked with one of the states for unemployment fraud. I saw a lot of the same people and tactics that I was seeing with a client I was working on refund fraud. There was a lot of crossover. Yeah. So I think it's very similar in a lot of ways that a lot of these are growing that way. Yeah, that's that's right. And it's it's that common people, the common pattern, which is why we established, we call it the auto fraud consortium. In fact, we just did a analysis and fraud people will love this actually analysis. I would, I would love it. You know, fraud people are always getting blamed. Like you just declined loans and they would have paid anyway, right? Because mm-hmm. you found some issue. So we just looked at it. Loans that were declined by fraud analysts at, at lender A, mm-hmm. if another lender bought those, because we get to see the traffic, we get to see oh, right. a lender bring it in. And if they decline it for fraud, we get to see if somebody else gets that loan. Hmm. If a fraud analyst at lender A declines a loan for fraud and somebody else buys that loan, you know, actually ends up funding that loan, the charge off rate on that population of loans is 50%, one out of every two charge off. Wow. So, that's the that's the value of the fraud analyst right there. It's like you are actually stopping the right loans because we can actually see what happens if you if you wouldn't. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, I yeah. have I have to wonder if there's something similar in consumer lending. I don't know if there is, but in more like just the general loans that are popping up online and, oh, and yeah. all of those, the fintechs, there has to be. I mean, that's really fascinating because I was actually going to ask that. You know, it sounds like there's really a need you explained it so well, but that there's really the two different types of fraud, right? There's the fraud for profit and they're intentionally doing it. And then there's the people who, you know, have every intention of paying their car payment for the long term. And, but they do fudge on the numbers so that they can get the car that they want. I would imagine this we're primarily, I mean, I think we're primarily talking about the U.S. domestically and, and that is just such a U.S. thing majority of people, it's just in the culture of wanting more than you can have. And so it's very similar to mortgage fraud in that way, especially what happened in the mortgage crisis in 2008. So it makes, knowing that makes perfect sense why you transitioned into this. Yeah, it was exactly, you nailed it, right? It was just mortgage fraud and auto fraud. Same team, it's secured lending and it's big ticket item. You know, mortgages are well, down here in San Diego now, they're 900000 for your average home, which is crazy. <laughs> Nobody can afford that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the price. And then autos, you know, those can run thirty, fifty thousand. dollars 50000 So those, those are the two biggest purchases you're yeah. going to make. So you're going to have to either make a lot of money or sometimes you have to fudge the details, right? And that's why it's so common. Right. Fraud. Right. Yeah. And I would have honestly not, thought of it as fraud more as like credit and risk issue. However, the fraud comes in in the lies. Yeah. And I think one of the things we were talking before the podcast, you were talking about how hard it is for you to convince people that refunding fraud is a <laughs> issue, yeah. right? Because it's hard to quantify. It's hard yeah. to quantify, but not, not really, right? If, if you look at, like, I think your stat was Chargebacks, yeah, the, the rate of did not receive merchandise is three times the level of chargebacks, mm-hmm. right? So your refunding fraud is sitting in that DNR, I guess that's yep. what you call it, DNR bucket. Maybe it's not 100% of it, maybe it's 50% of it. Even if it's 50% of it though, 
it's still more one than and a half chargeback. times your chargebacks. Yeah. yeah. One and a half times your chargeback. Mm-hmm. The same is true in auto. Hmm. So, which makes it hard to convince people sometimes that they should do something. Right. We look at what we did is we did analysis of loans that defaulted, loans that stopped paying when you went into a dealership and you bought a car, loans that stopped paying within the first six months. That's a problem, right? Why did you stop paying your loans yeah. so fast, right? We actually looked at those loans and lenders did as well and said, what percentage of those loans that stopped paying that look like credit risk reasons, like you stopped paying, right? Mm-hmm. Your payment. Up to 70% of those loans, when you went back to the initial application and you looked at what the borrower provided or the dealer had misrepresentations on the application. So hmm. those lies that people told on the application had a direct result on the payment of that loan. That's not a credit issue. Right. That's a fraud issue. Mm-hmm. If you lie to get a loan that you can't afford, even if you're well-intentioned, it's still fraud. Fraud is misrepresentation, right? It's mm-hmm. mis- you misrepresented your details. Yeah. You couldn't pay. Hmm. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but you're hmm. absolutely right. It's, I don't like the term because I just feel like it's used so much, but liar buyer, so to speak, right? <laughs> just, it's kind of silly, but, but it's somebody who's has good intentions, but what's that? My grandmother always said the road to hell is paid with good intentions. Like right. it's, it doesn't pay that good intentions don't pay the bills literally in this case. <laughs> yeah. And the other side of it that people don't realize is people get themselves in a bad situation. And here's, mm. here's an example with, with an auto loan. So you get a borrower who's got a pretty good credit score, right? They got a 700 credit score. They go out and they get a loan for a $50,000 car, but they don't have a job. Or maybe they, they know they're going to lose their job and they're getting the car so they can Uber drive, whatever it is. Mm. They get that car and the car goes down in values. Immediately you drive it off the lot. If you, that car, you stop paying within three months, they're going to repo the car. Mm-hmm. They sell that car for, let's see, you bought it for 50 and they sell it for $25,000. They're going to still make you pay the $25,000 oh, wow. that they couldn't recover. Oh. On top of that, your credit score is going to go down because you stopped paying. So you're going to end up, mm. what you're going to end up with is a 550 credit score and a $25,000 bill and no car, right? So the fact is, and I always tell lenders this, you can't, you don't want to put, even if they have well-intentioned, you don't want to put them in a position where they're going to be right. wrecking their credit getting a huge bill and not being able to, you know, recover. Those are the kinds of things that need to be taught in like high school, right? Like just economics on, which is a whole other podcast episode, but just finance and things like that. I mean, because certainly I I don't think enough people talk about what can happen if you don't pay your bills. You often end up owing so much more and you're paying, you know, in your example, you're paying $25,000 for nothing for the, for the opportunity to have driven that car for three months. Like, yeah. you know, and that's on top of your payments that you made those through or didn't pay. Yeah. So yeah, it's a lose, uh, lose proposition. For yeah. Sure. Well, I was actually going to ask you why car dealers cared as much as they do or what the loss was if they repoed a car and resold it. But it sounds like, I mean, because it loses its value so quickly and just wanting to get it off the lot, they'll reduce it quite a bit. It could be. Uh, it, it's a little bit different now because cars are actually, used cars are going up in price. Right. So that's, you know, that's true. They're actually, <laughs> their dealers are happy to repo your car because they can make more or they can resell <laughs> it and make a lot more fees. But going back a year, that wasn't the case. Right, right. That was the, that was, that we're a relatively unique situation right now. Yeah, it really, it really is. So just 
specific. Just going a little bit back to fake employer fraud. I'm curious why it's so challenging to verify employer. Is it just a timing thing where you call, you look at a website, it looks legitimate. You call the person and you feel like you've checked the boxes. And that's actually specific for when they're actually even checking, right? Because it sounds like on prime loans anyways, you know, if there's a credit score, it's pretty much an honor system. Yeah, it's, it's you really have to have a bird's eye view like we do, right? Mm-hmm. A lender is going to get, here, here, here's an example of, a. this is a fake employer we've seen about a thousand times <laughs> in the last year. It's called RSM Collections. And it's just a website that has a phone number that says HR Payroll Department. So <laughs> it's, why is it just like, why are you calling the right. HR Payroll Department? Usually it's like customer service. You don't, they don't have the phone number for HAR and payroll on the website. Good point. (laughs) There might be a thousand lenders in the industry. They only see it once or twice to them. It looks like Mm. random, but all of a sudden we see this company coming in our data and say, what the heck? These these must be huge employers. And we start to look into it. We see that 30%, 40% of the loans are defaulting. They're not paying. Mm. We're able to kind of, we're able because of our bird's eye view, we're able to say, wow, we can actually see these fake employers and notify the lender of it. So it's hard unless you have that cross-industry view to find right. these fraud rings. So that's how come we've been successful. But we always go to the, we look for, for us, our investigators look for certain things. Like when you go to the website, is the text, if you look at the text, it looks like it's been cut and pasted off another website. Mm-hmm. So you can do a Google search on some of the text and you can mm-hmm. say, wow, this goes to another company's website. They'll leave like on the websites because they're putting them up real quick, like El Pluribusunum and all of the Greek, the <laughs> all the Latin. They'll leave that on there. They'll steal images. You go to GoDaddy and hey, this website was just created. This domain yep. was created like a month ago. So we'd look at all those things and mm. be surprised. These things are popping up left and right. And you wouldn't maybe notice on first glance unless you kind of started to look. Yeah. These are fake employers. Yeah, it's such a good point. I mean, everyone who knows or listens to, you know, has listened to me on podcast or anywhere else I speak. I'm such a huge fan of collaboration and education because it's all, it's the two biggest things that give us an advantage on this side. And and they're really good about it on the other side too, right? Bad actors are great at training each other and, and learning and working together, but we have to too. And really that's a lot of what you guys have built is allowing those lenders to, to work together, at least leverage the information so that you can start seeing those trend analysis on a bigger scale and help them save a lot of money. Yeah, and it works. I mean, I think the same works on the, I'm sure there's consortiums on the merchant side, right? There are. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just, consortiums just work. If you're not sharing data, if you're not sharing best practices, you're going to suffer. I think I've always noticed, and I think maybe we talked about this because you might see this all the time, banks, merchants that are really siloed and mm. don't want to share and they don't want to, <laughs> they always, you go in and they tend to have a real big fraud problem because mm-hmm. they so. They believe that they shouldn't share any of their information because it's so valuable. Yeah. Right? They want to let somebody else get value from it. But inevitably, they have a hard time with fraud because they don't go out to conferences. They don't go out mm-hmm. and bring in consultants. They don't, they don't look or beyond what they do. Or when they do, they take and don't give and they get a reputation for that. 
And yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, uh, there are a few companies that come keep in mind, but there's one in particular. It's another story for another time, but they, they're probably getting hit one of the worst out of refund fraud. And they really strung me along for a consulting gig and got a lot of information out and then never called. In addition to contacting a lot of merchants and asking a lot of questions, but not ever offering anything. And, and the word has started to get out. Hey, those guys don't want to play ball. It's got to be a give a penny, take a penny situation. Yeah. It's like uh, penny wise, pound foolish, right? Trying to yeah. save a little bit of money and they're losing millions in the background. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I wasn't born yesterday. I didn't start my consultancy yesterday. So I'm not going to share everything, huh. no matter how much you try time. to ask and beg and plead and all that before there's an engagement. So yeah, they, they got a little bit and they bragged about how much they were able to save there, but I know they're getting hit in a lot of other ways. But back to consortiums, at least on the merchant side, I would just say that there's a lot of different types of consortiums on the merchant mm. side. Some are better than others, in my opinion. Yeah, here's Some the, are just yeah. shared negative lists. Others are shared information. Others are more looking at facts, not opinions. Like there's it really runs the gamut. It's all who you're, you have to know how to run a consortium to do it right. You can't mm-hmm. just take data. And we do, that's why we have our own fraud team here is because mm-hmm. we want business experts that understand fraud that are looking at the data coming in and saying, this is, we just want to take the data and say, oh, this is all, whatever the lender's report is what we're going to report back to everybody. Right. Because garbage in, garbage mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And this happens to so many solutions where they just start to let people self-report yes. in. And one lender or one merchant's throwing a bunch of garbage, like yep. the in Walmart's main phone number. And then yep. every other person is getting these flags every time Walmart <laughs> phone number shows up on a website. Yep. Or an IP address that everybody uses. Yeah. And, and that's a big problem with some of the consortiums is it's subjective. And so different merchants have different ideas of what to mark as fraud. So that's yeah. a big challenge. But there is one that I've been working with for the last two years. It's more similar to you guys, where it's just providing the data piece of what other merchants have on file for those people, actually trying to identify the good guys first, right? We've seen these guys with the same credit card, the same phone number, the same address for six years across 10 different merchants. They're good. Okay. And and that I think is, to me, I think that's the way to go for agnostic Consortiums, a lot of the consortiums are also built into to primary fraud platforms. And so those those are good. I'm not certainly not saying no, but just for a consortium only product, that to me is the way to go. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's the interesting point you bring up about. And this is really one of my learnings as a fraud person. If you want a solution, mm. you can swap set less work for other people. That's always a good way to sell it, right? Mm. We're finding that out. Like what you mentioned about Profiling the good actors. Yeah. What we're finding is an auto, yes, the losses are high, but if mm-hmm. you look at it as a rate, a percentage base, 99% of the borrowers are good. Mm. It's that 1% that are causing yeah. that 7.8 billion. So in our data, in our consortium, we're able to actually identify huge swaths of people that are should not be hindered mm. at all because they're very yeah. good credit risk. They're very there's no risk of fraud. Right. It's the flip side of fraud management is if you know how to tell who's being, who's telling a lie really well, then you actually know who's telling the truth because yes. it's the absence of those lies. So yes. And I, I, I think is personally a, think that's where transactional fraud should be going. 
yeah. is let's look at, let's identify the 97, you know, 98, depending on your business model right. percent of good guys and not give them any friction. And that's actually what Marianne and I were talking about at MRC a couple of weeks ago, as far as having trusted users and being yep. able to confidently say, these guys are good. Let them send them extra marketing details, send them, you know, whatever you want. Mm. Like, and that, that hopefully helps with the narrative as well internally, where saying to your boy earlier, like the kind of the bad reputation that fraud departments get for canceling everything. You can say, no, 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 this big group of customers go at them. Like they're good. Yeah. I yeah. mean, of course, of course, the the challenge is making sure you have to be able to say, we also have strong account security. So we're yep. not, we're not enabling account takeovers and, yeah. and, but I mean, that can all be done now with the technology out there. That's right. You see, open the, you can open the floodgates with the safety net and the safety yes. net is your fraud tool that mm -hmm. targets that 1% or half a, half a percent, whatever it is. And then the other 99% can go through because I think, and I think you pointed this out for a long time in merchants, there's so many false positives right up front, right? Like three, three, five, I don't know. It is, I don't know what the average is. I mean, is, it really depends on the fraud tool that's being yeah. used to be completely honest with you. I right. mean, they're not all created equal. And there are some that have like 10% of false declines. 10% of all orders are being canceled yeah. by fraud providers. And there's no way that that merchant has 10% of fraud, right? And, and that really, I mean, that's just such a granular process or conversation because it can also depend on the type of fraud provider, et cetera. But knowing that you and I could talk forever, but knowing <laughs> that we can't, I did want to definitely talk a little bit more about how all that you're seeing in auto fraud is really impacting other, is more than likely impacting other consumer fintech, whether it's consumer lending, buy now, pay later is a form of lending, all these other pieces, whether it's through fake employers, fake identity documents, all, in either bucket. A lot of times it's fraud for profit, but there's also a lot of people who will say that they make a lot to get a fast loan and then not be able to pay it back. So I think synthetic fraud in general has been around for several years and some industries have been good at it. Like I think banking has kind of had to deploy a few things that have yeah. had them be okay, but there doesn't seem to be a solution that's like universal. But could you explain a little bit about synthetic and then what you see as far as a solution to identify them? Yeah, this synthetic is really an interesting one because no other fraud type is as controversial, misunderstood, but actually pretty simple to find. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not hard. Everybody says, oh, it's so hard. It's not hard. I feel that way about first party friendly fraud in the merchant world, to be completely honest with you. But that's, yeah, again, a whole other conversation. At its at its at its root, what synthetic identity fraud is basically somebody using a social security number that's not theirs. Right. Whether they put their own name attached to it or another name and be more devious, it's just that. At its core, when somebody does that, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. Really, mm -hmm. it's going to, you're going to see typical synthetic identity. What you're going to see is somebody, okay, somebody that's 45 years old. They have a social security number. Wow, that was issued in 1988. That wasn't around when you were born. <laughs> it was like 30 years later. When you look at the credit, they're going to be like, wow, you got your first credit card two years ago, but you're 45 <laughs> years old and your social security number was issued in a state where you'd never lived and nothing is going to match up. I mean, every on a synthetic identity, virtually everything is going to stand out that hmm. doesn't look right. So it's actually very easy to find. So people kind of make a lot more of it 
Yeah. Than it is. But here, here's the catch with synthetic identity. This is the catch is people don't want to believe it because, mm. right? See, here's the thing. You don't have with synthetic identity. There's no one to call to say, are you real or are you giving me a fake social? And if you mm. did try to do that, they wouldn't answer the phone. And so you get no positive reinforcement. So you make a judgment call based upon those signals, which are very easy to see in the data, if you look for them. And there's lots of great solutions out there. We have one. Centrelink has one. Every credit bureau has one. Right. There are lots of solutions out there and they're all really good. I mean, I, I don't know of a not good one. I mean, I, I don't know if I know wow, that. That's good. Because it's not hard to find. It's, it's right. not hard. But huh. here, but the thing is, it's See, the I'm coming call. from a place of not, I haven't been in the lending side or the credit reporting side for like 15 years. And so I haven't been, you know, I only hear about synthetic and I would think it would be fairly easy as well, right? Yeah, it's so easy. But it seems like it's a manual process, though you it's, can turn those signals into data yeah. elements, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it, you can flag these 1% of loans, you can flag 1% of loans and find like a lot of your synthetic. But what makes synthetic kind of like your refund fraud issue mm-hmm. that you battling <laughs> is that about half the time synthetic identities will pay. That's huh. might not make sense to you. But the fact is a lot of people create synthetic identities because they don't have access to credit. So they go out and this is particularly true among recent immigrants. They don't have a mm. social security number. Maybe they're here illegally. They can't get one. So they buy one from somebody off the streets and they start using that social security number, mm. right? You ever heard of Hilda Wichner? No. In 1932, she worked for a wallet company and her boss oh. needed a social security number. <laughs> she gave him his and he printed it and put it in a card in the wallet. And about a year later, 40,000 people were using that social security as their own. That was I, the first, honestly, that was yeah. the first case of synthetic identity in the United States. It was 40,000 times. She's still, if you go out and search public records for her social, there are still 500 people using it on applications. So she's still, she's the most defrauded synthetic identity ever. But <laughs> I, I knew of, the story. I didn't know the name. <laughs> yeah, Hilda Witcher. So anyway, what happens is because you have a lot of well-intentioned people using social security numbers that aren't their own, mm-hmm. they're technically synthetics, but they have credit profiles and they look like they're going to pay. So a lot of lenders don't know how to tell the difference between the good one and the bad one, the, the fraudster. So they actually end up ignoring them. So I've actually been in lenders where they, they eyeball it and they go, no, this person's going to pay just because they look like they're going to pay. Wow. So, so synthetic continues. What a science. It's no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so that whole judgmental process completely breaks everything down around synthetic. Mm. So it continues to grow. It continues to make the headline news. If people say it's oh, so complex and it's so hard, but really at the end of the day, you can, you can pretty accurately identify it. There's lots of ways to stop it, but you have to draw a line in the sand and say, we're not going to accept any synthetic, whether it's good or bad based upon our judgment. And then you would get rid of the synthetic problem. It would stop mm-hmm. because what happens, this is a vicious cycle of synthetic mm-hmm. is once one lender allows that synthetic to be approved, it propagates the credit bureau and it makes the synthetic more legitimate. And then another yeah. does it and the synthetic is now re-legitimized. And now you have, you've opened the door, you've created the issue of synthetic, you haven't stopped it. So it's like ants at a picnic. When the ants go and get their, get their thing, they go back to the uh, ant 
hole, I guess it is. And they tell their friends, hey, there's something over here. And all the ants go. And now you've got a synthetic problem that's growing. So that's just my little rant on synthetic. No, I, I think it's very fascinating. And there are more companies that are starting to provide different forms of, of credit for their customers, whether it's through just thinking about e-commerce. You now, obviously, they have private label cards and some of them are considering issuing, you know, buy now, pay later options themselves and all those other things. And so it definitely that part. Before we were recording, which I always feel bad referencing that because I feel like people have FOMO, but we can't help ourselves the second we get on Zoom, we just start nerding out. You were talking about, I was like, oh, we should probably start recording about how you search YouTube often for the, not the phrase, but the acronym CPN. And I think that might be of interest to people because that's something that's not a term I was, I've heard you say it. I've heard other people say it, but I'm not as familiar with it because it's not my world. (laughs) Yeah. I always look at like synthetic identity as, as going in waves over the years. And the most recent wave of synthetic identity is driven because I believe in my mind, the use of the word CPN, which means credit privacy number. Mm-hmm. It's a term that was created by credit repair companies. And they all have a talk track that says credit privacy numbers really allow you to be private about your social. Don't share your social because you don't want your personal information out there. They say, oh, the FBI has declared CPNs legal. Some have even said that the FBI issues these CPNs. Huh. It, for me, about four or five years ago, I heard the term CPN myself and I was going, I thought it was legitimate based upon what I was reading. And I kept yeah. going, this doesn't sound right. So I kept searching and searching. And finally, I determined the use of CPN is nothing more than a ruse to have credit repair companies sell you. So what they do is they sell you a nine digit number they call a CPN, but it's a social security number. They just basically go on a site called like SSN uh, Validator, I think they call it. You can go on there. You type in six numbers, see if it comes back. It's not like red flagged or black. And then they sell it to you. And I bought one because I wanted to see what the whole process. And they sold me a nine-digit number. It was a social security number of a a 12-year-old person. And they said, go ahead and use this. They said, don't use your real name. Don't use your real address. Don't use your, your phone number. Don't use your email because they'll track it back to you. Wow. They basically told me how to create a right. synthetic, synthetic identity ID. using a CPN. Right. So, Which is happened, a CPN is basically code for stolen or stolen someone social else's security. social security number. Stolen social security number. But that's how they're allowing it. people to have credit, right? They're not actually repairing their own credit on their social security no. number. They're just providing them with a new yeah. identity. Oh, okay. I've In always wondered 70- how credit repair companies were like how, how that enabled that's synthetic fraud. Wow. In the 70s, the, the wave in the 70s around synthetic identity was called file segregation. Hmm. And it was people, even the bulletin boards, I can remember back in the start of the internet, it was the BBS boards. You, if you go back there and you do like, look at old fraud postings, it was all around file segregation. What huh. that meant is you could create a brand new credit file by jumbling up your personal information, taking your social security number, flipping the last two digits, taking your first and last name, flipping it, and then taking your year, your year and month of birth and flipping some of the characters around. Because what you're doing when you flip around your PII, you're fooling the credit bureaus. Right. The credit bureaus have a, what they call a pinning algorithm. And it takes elements of your name, elements of your social security number and your address and your date of birth. And it kind of amalgamates it into a string. And then they find your, your credit bureau based on that. But if you jumble up all the information, when the credit bureau goes to search that, 
it doesn't find a record. So what do credit bureaus do? They put an inquiry on that mm. new pinned feature and you basically propagated a new credit report. You started a new credit report. You started a new credit. And that's the, that's the C that, you're, that will eventually become the synthetic identity you can use. So that CPN was all around legitimizing stolen social security numbers, but doing it in a way where they could sell it to good people, unsuspecting consumers here in the US who are not bad people, mm. who are, think they're just getting a new number to use to improve their credit. Right. And it's, it actually has nothing to do with their current credit. Yeah. Right? They don't realize, those people don't realize, because they hear the term synthetic, they don't realize I'm actually committing synthetic ID fraud. And these are, these are mothers, you know, there's a, we, we were going to have one of the lady in our consortium meeting to talk about how she was victimized by this. Mm. She was arrested. She was thrown in jail because she bought a CPN and bought a car. She has three kids. Didn't make much money. She was well-intentioned, but they threw her in jail because she used a CPN. And so that's the wow. problem with CPNs. That's, wow. Uh, <laughs> so I always search that because. Yeah. Because. Uh, you yeah. And you had mentioned there's a, yeah, that, that some, some e-commerce companies that offer their own installment payments can be some of the favorites as far as you can use your CPN here. No problem. That's kind of yeah. what you're, yeah which is fascinating to me. So on that note, just kind of wrapping up, I guess I'm really curious to know, I, and again, I know I have a lot of international listeners, but this can be your episode to just make fun of the US and our systems and broken processes and systems. But how would you change the credit issues in, in the country, right? Whether you're advising the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or Congress, but if you were able to advise the government, the US government or other governments on what they can do to reduce these identity issues in consumer lending. Yeah. What would you propose? Because would, there are some broken system issues with yeah. reporting and the credit agency just kind of taking people's word for it and all yeah. these pieces. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I can't think of it. A, a, and I don't want to, I know a lot of good people working in government, but I yes. can't think of anybody that's messed up identity in the last two years more than some of these government agencies, the state agencies in particular that <sighs> don't have the tools, right? Yes, so, that, that's a very good point. Yeah, is that who we should be looking to to fix this problem? <laughs> but at the same time, like who else do we look at, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I think the thing that I would look at, especially like the problem of synthetic identity, is basically putting in some more guidelines for being able to trace, like, how do you know, Carice, that you don't, that someone isn't using your social security number? Like, you don't get a LifeLock alert. Even if, if you had LifeLock, you wouldn't. Right. You don't get in, nobody, no lender, if they get your social security with another name is going to notify you. I think there has to be some transparency and visibility to the end consumer about if their social security number only is being used, right? Mm. Because especially kids, like you really won't know. And I can do it because I have access to, you know, investigative tools where I can mm. see mm -hmm. most people don't. I think there needs to be some transparency around use of your social security number out there, some reporting about it so that you can get like, you can actually give that positive confirmation back to banks and lenders if if that social belongs to them or not. Right. Uh, because you can be part of that. They, they put out the ECBSV. I don't know if you heard about this, but mm -mm. this is, you can now go directly to the Social Security Administration. If you sign something with your loan, they can ping the Social Security Administration and say, does this name match to this Social Security number? Huh. And get a response. It's really good. But I think they need to kind of go a step further with it. It's actually pretty onerous to use. Like you can't just check mm. that. You have to sign a bunch of documents and, retain the documents and it's it's on expensive. an API. Yes. It's, 
it is an API, but it's really locked Ooh, down. But yeah. um, things like that. I think the education though has been actually great with the FTC and some mm. of the things that they've been doing, especially mm-hmm. around synthetic identity. I, I like a lot of the things the government has done. I know it's not really, it wasn't really popular, but the use of some of these new technologies like driver's license checking, I think that was a good positive thing. I don't think it was. I think it was. Uh, <laughs> I don't little, think they selected the right vendor. That might be, or they didn't. And there's at least one state uh, that has an RFP from me that I recommended a very different vendor that has much better results, but they chose to go with who everyone else was going with. I think that the problem with that is that the technology is not created equal, right? That's right. Like they're that's not right. all. They're not all good. Uh, they're not all good. They're they're not all quality, is what I should say. Not that they're you know good bad, but they don't. Some are much better at, sure. at identifying fake documents than others. But sure. you're right that that was a good thought. <laughs> it was a good thought, and I think that's just going to get better. A lot of growing pains there. I think they should have had a selection of you know vendors to benchmark against. Like you mm-hmm. said, performance should have rolled it out slower. I tried to use it myself, and it was. A fiasco. I remember, yeah, yeah, when you you had a great idea for a podcast episode and then the IRS took it away from you. They took basically. it away. Really? But again, you had reached out to me a, I don't know, a month ago or so saying that you had tried to use the new IRS website with all of the new identity documentation verification that they had implemented. Our, and it took a long time. And you're you were minutes. you. Right. I, I knew how to do. Yeah, I kind of knew it. Um, I kind of knew the process, but yeah. yeah so I think, I, I don't know. I think there's so many different things. I think, I think all of the common things, technology, education, I think what Apple's going to be doing around real IDs and mm. the phone mm. and all of the, basically the phone becomes more central to your identity. I'm a big believer in the phone being like you talked to Marion and prove. I think yeah. all that is great because you can go to kind of source of truth information mm-hmm. and everybody's got one, right? And you yeah. can do a lot with it. So, yeah, that's very true. And I I do have, I try to err on, you know, positivity and optimism and do hope that we'll be collectively be using the right technology for going headed in the right direction (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, against fraud. Well, is there any final thoughts from this study or anything else we've talked about today that you would like to share with my audience? No, I think it's always a great opportunity to kind of share the insights around the fraud I deal deal with and your audience. I know, I think you got a lot of big following in like e-commerce and merchants, Mm -hmm. I think. And fintech. And fintech. (laughs) Yeah, all these really growing areas. My thing, I think we agree on this is at things like identity get a lot of, a lot of exposure and a lot, a lot of interest. (laughs) But really the problem I think that we should really focus on, if you want to get the make the biggest impact is in the hidden fraud. Mm. I've really been focused on our company has been is the stuff that's under the surface. That's a lot harder. The stuff where it's first party fraud, the stuff that the refunding fraud. I mean, that's where we should really be focusing to move the needle. So I think my, I guess my closing comment is don't be afraid to, within your organizations, to raise the red flag and talk about the unpopular things. Because you have to keep having those conversations over time, one after another. And if enough of us are out there talking about it, it's going to become the reality. And then they're going to get investment for it. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest hurdle is getting the investment. So much of the investment goes to the popular tools and the popular frauds that everybody's talking about and not these really big hidden frauds that nobody wants to admit. 
Yeah, absolutely. We were talking, I think, I don't think this was when we were recording, but buy now, pay later. A lot of them, you know, will say that the largest chunk of denials that they, that they issue are around credit risk. Mm -hmm. But I am, have very strong reason to believe that actually a majority of those are probably identity issues. They're probably synthetic, they're identity theft, they're, you know, various pieces like that, but they're just putting them into the credit risk bucket. And so that's another example. And and I'm with, I very much agree with you because I think the biggest problem with hidden fraud, as you call it, is it's hard to quantify because it's hiding in other buckets. Yeah. Yeah. And until you, you can't fight a, a credit risk. You can't, how do I put this? Unless you admit there's a problem, your credit risk tools are never going to solve that problem. Of fraud. Yes. So you have to, yes. first, if there's fraud in that bucket and then apply your fraud people, your fraud tools, your fraud technologies, your fraud <laughs> approach. But you have to make that admission first that exists and then you can take some fraud measures. But if you never admit it, mm. go, you're just going to have your, you know, high credit risk losses and right. 50% of them will be fraud and you never want to admit it. So you're going to keep taking those losses. So the real winners are going to be the people that admit it first. hundred percent. I actually was just laughing because I was thinking, well, Frank, should we create the 12 steps of fraud? It's like a 12 step program of admitting you have a problem is the first step. But I, I do agree with that because if you're miscalculating, if you have these buckets, whether it's refund fraud and we're just putting them in, people say they didn't get the product or warehouse anomalies or whatever it is. And same with credit risk issues, right? If we're, if we're naming them that, then there's no solution. There's no reducing it because you're not getting to the root of the problem. Exactly. Just keeps going on and on. (laughs) (laughs) And while that's job security, we, we don't want that, right? Like we, we want to do the very best we can to try to save the companies that we work with or work for as much money and honestly make it more expensive and more time consuming to commit fraud. Absolutely really all of our goals. Got to put the hurdles up. Yeah. It's too That's, easy. Right. Right. Yeah. Without putting too much hurdles on the good guys, right? It's constant True. balance. But absolutely. Frank, I know you have a busy rest of your day. And so I have taken up more time than planned, but thank you so much for yeah. your time and sharing this information. I have no doubt that my listeners will appreciate it and you'll probably hear from a few of them. And yeah. No, I appreciate again. you letting me talk about auto fraud. It's like my this is my day job. I talk about it all day long, but I love all fraud types. It just so happens this is my latest <laughs> venture. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, we're really determined to kind of make a dent in this. And then you know, who knows what's next? You know, what's yeah, after I all? Love <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. And I think, I think it's important. Anyone who's in fraud is similar to you. I think to those of us who've gotten the bug, we enjoy learning about other types of fraud, not just our own. And so that's why I thought, this would be fascinating because I didn't know as much about it as I wanted to, but also there are, there is crossover and trends happening from card issuers to all these other pieces that are seeing very similar tactics and issues than as you are. I, the fake employment documents and all of that are not just being used in auto lending. So it's important. (laughs) And, and if, and if companies don't know that that exists, it's really important that they do. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, thanks, Chris. I just love having these conversations and uh, I love your podcast. I listen to it when I ride my Peloton bike. Oh, <laughs> I, get my, my, I learn a lot. I mean, just from oh, all I'm, your guests. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm very lucky to know some yeah. of the smartest people, you very much included. And thank you again for making time for this. I really appreciate all right. it. All right. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. 
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.